This is Minds Worth Meeting from Stern Strategy Group, a podcast where we talk with some of the top thought leaders in the world, from business leaders and technology analysts. What does it mean when powerful technologies are cheaply or even freely available across our society? How does it change the systems? How does it change the shape of the workforce or how firms behave or which firms succeed? To academics and researchers. We make a preventable failure because you were not able to speak up about something you knew that would have helped us make a better decision. Shame on all of us, but it's a shame. We welcome a new Mind Worth meeting in each episode. Here you'll find accessible, down-to-earth conversations about some of the most important topics of the day with the experts and leaders who are the top authorities in their fields. On this episode of Mind's Worth Meeting, we're taking a look back at season two and the technology, marketing, and organizational behavioral experts we had the pleasure of speaking with. I'm Justin Lewis. In our first episode, I sat down with technology analyst, futurist, and author of The Exponential Age, Azim Azar. My first question to Azim was, how is technology advancing exponentially? For the first time really in history, technologies of many, many different types are getting exponentially cheaper. That is double digit percentages cheaper every single year. So not just do we see an enormous price decline of core technologies in a lifetime, we might see it actually in a five-year business planning cycle. And that makes it a really, really interesting environment and an interesting set of processes to try to explore and make sense of and understand their ramifications, particularly for businesses. Next, we talked about the buzziest technology of the year, ChatGPT. I asked Azim how he uses it in his everyday work. Simple examples will be to summarize and extract the key points from YouTube videos. There's a lot of great material in YouTube videos and my team and I are very interdisciplinary. So we could be looking at you know, neuroscience, sodium ion batteries, advanced materials for fusion reactors, and that will just be a Wednesday morning. So the ability to very quickly navigate a two-hour video is really powerful, saves a lot of time. Of course, we use it for summarization of complex documents. So what I do is I will use GPT-4, as it happens, to summarize a long piece of research to essentially give me the waypoints, what is a key argument, richer than the abstract, that the author is trying to tell me. And then I can read the research with a sense of that map. It's a little bit like looking at a guidebook before right. you sort of wander around Sri Lanka or you know, up to Machu Picchu. You have a sense of why you're there and what you're looking for. A pragmatic optimist about the future of technology and the future of the Earth Azim foresees a future of energy prosperity. I really think that energy is ultimately prosperity, right? Energy is so closely tied to prosperity, good human outcomes. If you look at the countries with strong rights, great welfare, great incomes, they are all countries largely with high energy usage. There are some outliers like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but in general, energy is the path to prosperity. And once we can drive the price down, even from a factor of 10 from where it is today, we will just use much, much more of it in order to deliver sustainable prosperity. Finally, Azim gives a fascinating explanation of how what we do goes to the very core of who we are. We connected our identities, our social identity, our family name, who we are, where we came from, to the things that we do and did and have done that for a long time. And it's really embedded fundamentally in the key moments of our lives, right? When we take the sacred vows with our partner, when we sure. name our children and we register them in sort of government form. So we shouldn't understate the fundamental impact of these transitions and these exponential curves on who we are. 
In episode two, Kenny Conrad spoke with Rutgers University School of Communications and Information professor Mark Beal, an expert on how Gen Z communicates. Here, he talks about his research and books on Gen Z. I wrote my first Gen Z book 2018, and it was called Decoding Gen Z. And the focus, what are they doing on their phones all <laughs> day? Right. And so I think a perception was they're hanging out, they're watching videos, they're killing time. And in fact, that's not what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were creating and producing and distributing content, yeah. But they were actually launching companies. Right. They were creating communities of shared interest. I've got Gen Zers who launched 501c3s. And believe it or not, they're doing it all from the palm of their hand. This is not a lazy generation. This is not a generation that just playing video games. They are entrepreneurs. They are purposeful. They are innovative. Embracing technology in a way that they're using it to, again, maybe launch their own company, launch a 501c3, launch a community, launch a movement. Next, Mark points out how this generation has many more channels of communication than previous generations. The channels have changed, right? So in the 90s, 2000s, 2005, the primary channels then were television, radio, newspaper, maybe magazine, right? Well, those are still around, some of them, but the channels today are, you know, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and others. But it's still about storytelling. It's still about compelling and engaging storytelling. So whether you can create a campaign in 2023 or 2003, it still has to be compelling, still has to be timely, still has to be relevant, and still has to kind of break through to get noticed. Again, 2003, it had to break through to get noticed by the New York Times, USA Today, NBC, ABC. Today, it's got to get noticed by, again, maybe social media influencers. Finally, Mark calls attention to the unique conditions that Gen Z has had to face because of the COVID pandemic and how they've built an important quality, resilience. The pandemic impacted all of us, and some in very serious ways. But for Gen Z, it happened during their most formative years. And I know some people may scoff at this when I say this, but you know, we all, meaning millennials, Xers, boomers, if we're older than Gen Z, we got to enjoy milestones like actually walking in our high school graduation and getting a diploma, mm -hmm. going to a prom, participating in sports, getting an internship, getting a job. For Gen Z, it happened during their most formative years. So whether they were in high school or college, it put a hold on a lot of things. Not only did they have to quickly pivot to remote learning, which, by the way, no one trained or prepared anyone for that. So that was spring 2020. I had sophomores and juniors who I'd worked with and we secured internships. All of a sudden, you know, March 15th, April 1. Nope, no, I'm an internship now. That's devastating. Now my resume is not going to have an internship. Graduates of class of 2020, most of them didn't get a job for 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 months. So impacted them significantly. My flip side of that is incredible resilience. In our third episode, we turned our attention back to technology, and I spoke with the director of Columbia University's Creative Machines Lab, Hod Lipson, who acknowledged that while technology is moving awfully fast, it's not too late for organizations to get on board with the latest emerging trends. Things are moving very, very fast. If everybody's feeling like they're either uh, being left behind or they can't keep up with everything's going, it's overwhelming, they're not alone. Everybody is really feeling that. People who are well-versed in AI, people who are at the top of their game, people who have been leading this field for many years, as well as people who are just getting into it or they're leading companies who are just dabbling with AI, everybody's feeling like they can't keep pace. So it's right. a very common feeling. In fact, I would say even faculty who have been working on AI for a long time feeling surprised by sort of the rate of progress. While driverless cars have been slow to catch on, Hot explains that while they'll have to earn their place in our everyday lives, the benefits 
will be hard to ignore. But driverless cars will have to earn their place. Uh, you're not going to force people to take driverless cars. You're just going to be so good that it's going to be just uh, irresistible. And it could be irresistible because it's safer. It could be irresistible because, you know, insurance costs for a driverless car is going to be a lot lower than insurance costs for a human-driven car. Could it be that driverless cars offer benefits of freedom and distance that are difficult to attain using uh, a human-driven car? Could be many reasons, but I think it's going to happen naturally over a period of about a decade. A lot of the narrative around the potential dangers of AI technology have been focused on things like robots taking over the world. Hot isn't worried about that, but he is concerned about the potential of love. A lot of people are concerned about uh, AI doing things that are bad to people taking over the world and things like that. The one thing I'm worried about really is the ability of AI to sort of win us over with love, not with okay. war. Mm-hmm. If AI is so good that we will start having very close, intimate, emotional relationships with AI, that could be very dangerous. It's right. as, as addictive as uh, substance abuse. And finally, Hod touches on one of the topics that a lot of academics avoid, AI self-awareness. Can we create a machine that will be self-aware, will be conscious, will be sentient? machine that doesn't just fake feelings and smile at you, but actually has feelings. And for many years, uh, decades, this has been not only a taboo topic, uh, it was sort of a mix of being technically impossible, Mm -hmm. undefined. There was no good reason to do it. In fact, there were many reasons to not do it. It, For many reasons, people, at least in engineering, have shied away from this topic. And it was a realm of philosophy. We don't even know what self-awareness is. To me, I've always felt this is not only important, this is the ultimate question of where this whole robotics journey and AI journey is going to end. And we better start thinking about it for many reasons, both because the benefits of having an intelligent system that is actually conscious is immeasurable in its benefit, but also risks are there and we have to start thinking about it. In episode four, Dean of the Ohio State University's College of Engineering, Ayanna Howard, joined Whitney Jennings for a fascinating chat about robots and AI, which Ayanna points out is all around us and has been for quite some time. One of the things that most people don't realize is that everything you touch right now that deals with computing traditionally is designed based on data and algorithms. And we call that artificial intelligence. Um, How do you use human data? how to use our interactions with the world to do things interesting. Everything from, you know, driving our car in terms of cruise control, going to the airport and having facial recognition identify you so you can easily go through TSA, figuring out what's the best flight that you want to get to from Atlanta to London at 2 p.m. on Friday, August 5th. And so AI is part of our everyday lives because it just is what functions. Everything, everything. While AI has been around for a while, she points out that this moment is different, and it's vital to ensure that all are taken into consideration when developing these systems. We've been part of this world in terms of interacting with AI for a while. We do have to be mindful, though, because I think now is a time to ensure that everyone's part of the equation. I think the difference between now and in the past is that AI has seeped into things that we consider our civil liberties things that we consider interacting with our quality of life, whether it's jobs or healthcare, And that's the things we need to be careful about because we need to have a voice of when AI can be used and when we should have 
rules, regulations, policies, so that we also have the ability to speak up of when it's used for good and when it's not used for good. One of the most important topics in this time of exponential growth of artificial intelligence systems is how development should be regulated. Here, Ayana weighs in. With pharma, you can't have a startup just decide to put a drug out. So you have to also have resources. Right. So I think when we think about AI, when we have AI for things that are high risk, we should definitely have this regulations and policies and companies self-regulating themselves. When we have AI for low-risk things, is a low-risk thing such that I want to create a toy that can make me laugh every so often? I don't know if you need regulations on that. So it makes some bad jokes, off-color jokes. Yeah, okay, I just won't buy it or I'll tweet or say this is a horrible, horrible, horrible app. Right. Okay, let's have the startups have their space. Um, and so there's a combination. So I would say the pharma for high-risk types of applications, the drug industry for high-risk applications is a model with some caveats of there could be better ways of thinking about how do you ensure all individuals are represented in the data that's being collected, reviewed, even in the drug industry. We know that this has been a problem in the past. Finally, Ayana reveals the two most important things she asks her teams to consider when developing new technology. If we do this, what are the unintended consequences? And just throw out anything that could possibly happen. What I find is, is that when I ask that question, it makes people think outside of their box. It's like, okay, what are the unintended consequences? Well, we could destroy the world. All right, let's have a conversation. What's the risk? What's the probability of that? Right. The other thing I always ask is, should we be doing because I think a lot of times as developers, I mean, we like to be the first to the market. We like to be the ones that other people pat us on the back. Like, oh, that's that's so wonderful. That's great. You are awesome and amazing. But the other question is, is should we really be doing this and why? Right. Um, so those are the things that I challenge my team to think about. For our final artificial intelligence focused episode, I spoke with AI ethicist and author of Ethical Machines, Reed Blackman, who said that while the large language model genie is out of the bottle, it's not too late for corporations to take a careful approach to adopting generative AI systems. Is the large language model genie out of the bottle for society at large? Yes. That ship has sailed. That's toothpaste that's out of the tube. Forget about it. But if you're a corporation and you're thinking about our uses for generative AI, no, the toothpaste is not out yet. There are surely people within your organization using it, but you can get a handle on it. You can get a grip on it. It's not too late. Next, we touched on regulation. While Reed shares the concerns of many experts about how easy it has become to spread misinformation, he points out that laws and regulations can only do so much. When it comes to things like the spread of misinformation, that can be done seemingly quite low budget. You can generate fake stories, you can post them to social media, you can generate fake websites and fake video and fake images very easily. So that's a real concern. I don't know, though, of anything substantive, legally speaking, that would stop those individuals from doing those things. And even if you did have laws or regulations that stop people from doing it, good luck stopping the person in Russia. What's a law against it in the U.S. going to do against the bad actor in Russia? Going deeper into the conversation about bad actors, he explains the difference between bad actors and accidental actors. Organizationally, if you're talking about AI and enterprise, for instance, or startups or anything like that, the problem there is not bad actors. It's just sort of accidental actors. It's people making certain kinds of decisions that they don't realize have ethical implications, that they're ethically and reputationally and potentially regulatory and legally risky. And so they just do these things. Finally, Reed outlines how he counsels clients to think about AI ethics, with the first step being to be able to articulate your ethical nightmare scenarios. I think that organizations 
organizations need to specify what their ethical nightmares are, get really clear on, okay, if things go bad for us in the way that we might use AI, generative AI in particular, what does that look like? Let's get specific about this. And one nice thing about this is that I find that leaders are quite prepared, and junior people for that matter, are quite prepared to articulate what those ethical nightmares might look like. So we talk about ethical risk and reputational risk, and then people get sort of scared off, or they're not really sure what to do with ethics. It's squishy, it's subjective. But if you say, tell me your ethical nightmares, those could actually be quite specific, quite vivid. And they're relatively easy to articulate. And for some, like a social media company, the spread of misinformation is going to be a major, it's going to be high up on your list. But if you're a financial services company, then the spread of misinformation is sort of not within your purview. So that's not going to be your ethical nightmare. So it's important to tailor the articulation of the nightmares to your actual industry, your organization, etc. In our final episode of the season, Whitney was joined by Thinkers 50's 2021 number one management thinker in the world and author of the upcoming book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson. Here, she explains what it means to fail well. To me, that means first the wisdom to discern between preventable accidents that we should work hard to prevent and smart experiments that we have no way to guarantee will end in the success we hope. So it starts with discernment, recognizing what are we doing here? How much knowledge do we have? And psychological safety becomes critical because first of all, you've got to have people speaking up mm -hmm. with what they know. If we make a preventable failure because you were not able to speak up about something you knew that would have helped us make a better decision. Shame on all of us, but it's a shame. Yeah. So psychological safety allows us to get whatever information we currently have to make the best possible decision or design the best possible experiment. It also helps people speak up quickly about small mistakes or small deviations from best practice before they blossom into larger, more consequential failures. Next, Amy describes three types of failures starting with the two you want to avoid. The two that are bad news, I'll start there, is basic failures and complex failures. Basic failures are single cause failures, you know, a single human error, a single missed step in a recipe, hmm. and the outcome is a failure. And these are in situations where we do, in fact, have the knowledge we needed to do it right. We can make an automobile, we can cook those cookies, yep. and we had a recipe to do it right. Complex failures are multi-causal. They are the perfect storms. They are the accidents and failures that happen when, unfortunately, a number of different things went wrong at sort of the same time and lined up. The thing about complex failures is that usually if you had just caught and corrected one of those factors, you could have prevented the failure. So in a way, they're, they're sort of pernicious because they're so complicated. On the other hand, they give you many opportunities for catching and correcting and preventing them. Here, she goes on to define intelligent failures. Intelligent failures, these are the good kind. Okay. So how do we define them? Well, I define an intelligent failure as something that's happening in new territory. You literally can't look up the answer on the internet. Right. We don't have a recipe. They are in pursuit of a worthy goal. It's something you care about, whether that is the discovery of a, a life partner or a new drug to cure some kind of cancer. But they're in pursuit of a worthy goal, large or small. Number three, they're hypothesis driven, meaning you've done your homework. You've gone to the trouble of finding out what's known about this. Does someone know this person I'm about to go out on a date with? You think that through. And then finally, and probably most often missed, as small as possible. You know that phrase, go big or go home. That doesn't apply here. 
right? It's have your experiment, have your trial just big enough to learn from and no bigger. You know, you don't promise to go spend a week with someone you don't know. You go out for coffee, right? To see how it goes. You, right. know, you don't do a clinical trial with all of the patients in the world with this disease. You do it with just enough to get statistical validity to know whether it works. When it comes to avoiding preventable failures, Amy says it's vital to recognize our limitations, include others, and ask ourselves, what am I missing? Once you recognize that I am necessarily limited in what I know and in what I see, then you realize you're reliant on others. Like you've got to, if you want to avoid preventable failures and you want to have the most intelligent failures in new territory, that's a team sport, right? You've got to be asking people, what do you know? What do you see? What am I missing? You know, that question, what am I missing, ought to be a prominent piece of your repertoire. In a fitting ending to season two, Amy emphasizes the importance of curiosity and learning to capture joy, meaning, and success. Choose learning over knowing. In every minute or every day when you make that choice, good things happen. It makes you curious. And I really think curiosity is sort of the secret sauce to living a full and joyful life because you're more likely to be genuinely interested in other people, who they are, what they're thinking, what they know, and to develop really meaningful, rich relationships with others, which is where joy comes from, where meaning comes from, and ultimately where career success also comes from. You know, the people who are curious are the ones who are discovering new things and driving themselves and their teams forward into new realms. Wise words to wrap the season from Amy Edmondson. Our thanks to Amy and all of our season two guests, Azim Azar, Mark Beal, Hod Lipson, Ayanna Howard, and Reed Blackman. We'll be taking a short break while we start pre-production on season three of the show. You can find Minds Worth Meeting on your favorite podcasting platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. You can also listen to every episode and watch our video interviews on sternstrategy.com. Minds Worth Meeting is a production of Stern Strategy Group and is a collaboration of Stern Speakers and Advisors and Stern PR and Executive Visibility. Our hosts for Season 2 are Whitney Jennings, Justin Lewis, and Kenny Conrad. Alan Halimsky is our video editor. The Mindsworth meeting team includes Kaylee Heverin and Meg Vierig. Whitney Jennings is Stern Speakers and Advisors Marketing Manager. And Brandon Pantano is our Digital Marketing Director. Thanks for listening to Stern Strategy Group's Mindsworth meeting.